Chapter One of The Fortune Hunter, a novel of New York Society. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kelly Taylor. www.tla.wapshotpress.org. The Fortune Hunter by Anna Cora Mowat. Chapter One You've displaced the mirth, broke the good meeting with most admired disorder. Macbeth. Money is power, tis said. Halleck. Try a wing of this partridge, Ellery. These are the first of the season. You don't eat. Thank you. I prefer discussing this vol au vin, a favorite dish of mine. By the way, I dare say Alsop will do justice to your delicate partridges. Certainly, my dear fellow, there's nothing like partridge prepared by one of these French cooks. Food for the gods, decidedly. Give me half of one. Three young men were seated round a table spread with epicurean viands in one of the private rooms of Delmonico's sumptuous establishment. I said young men, but the term could only be applied par compliance to the eldest, Mr. Joseph Ellery, or it should be considered in the application as descriptive rather of his appearance than years. The first leaf of his worthy father's family Bible would probably have proclaimed that he had seen the ripe maturity of forty in days long past, but as that tell-tale page had been carefully destroyed, as the ladies pronounced Mr. Ellery an accomplished beau, and as he was in the habit of designating himself as a garçon, and more than this, as the united skill of Grandjean and Parmley and Derby and Tryon had been called into action to preserve the bloom of his youth unimpaired, I was only following the example of the fashionable world in ranking him with the young men. The gentleman on his left, who he addressed as Alsop, was one of that large class of young men about town, whose characters are the most difficult to draw because there are no landmarks at which you can begin, inoffensive creatures who seek for pleasure whatever they can find it, and harm nobody so much as themselves. You may describe their well-cut coats, their slender canes, the moustaches they are daily supplicating to give expression to their lips, the color of their hair and eyes, but the features of the internal soul too seldom display themselves to be caught and commemorated. Next to Mr. Alsop, and apparently doing the honors of the table, sat his friend Augustus Brainerd. The expression of his face was social, sensual, jovial, and reckless. The twinkle of his bright, dark eye seemed to say, An easy life, a short one if you like, but a merry one for me. His features were all tolerably fine, and, after he had paid an hour's devotion to the mirror, they might have been called handsome. His face was full and unfurrowed, a profusion of brownish hair, though carefully training, 
had been taught to curl about his low, narrow forehead, and a pair of thrifty whiskers, rather strongly inclined to be an auburn hue, formed a not very imperfect semicircle around his cheeks and chin. He was tall and finely formed, his manners polished in the extreme, and always carried about him plenty of the small change current in conversation, but was almost as deficient in banknotes as his own purse. The lively conversation with which the gentlemen were discussing their dinner gave more relish to their food than all Delmonico's piquant sausage. Ellery had commenced one of his most amusing stories, and Brainerd had just cut the cork of the first bottle of Clicquot, which flew toward the ceiling with an exhilarating sound, when one of the French waiters, bowing himself into the room, announced that a gentleman wanted to see Monsieur Brenard on one particular business. "'What is his name?' demanded Brainerd, rather petulantly. "'He not send his name, monsieur. He say his name not no matter.' "'I have no particular business with anybody. "'Tell him I am engaged with some especial friends. "'He must call at my rooms.' "'Oui, monsieur, but I do tell him so once myself, "'and he seem very anxious to come up. "'Give him my message. I shall see nobody.' "'The waiter had hardly closed the door "'before voices from without were heard engaged in argument.' In a moment he reappeared. Monsieur Brunard, he says he is one of your friends most intimate, and that you will always rejoice very much to see him. He said he must see you, and he not go away till he do. Tell him to go to the devil. Do not admit him on any consideration. Be sure that you see him safe out of the house yourself. Oui, monsieur. And the waiter turned to the door and placed his hand upon the knob, but it opened without his assistance, and with such ungentle force that it was with some difficulty he escaped being knocked down. "'Ah, Brainerd, my dear fellow, how do you do? "'I knew you'd be glad to see me. "'I would not send in my name by one of those French jaconapes, "'for they always murder the President's English, you know. "'How do you do, gentlemen?' "'The rosy hue, which half a bottle of fine old Madeira "'had materially deepened, fled from Brainerd's cheeks "'as he looked up at the salutation of a voice familiar as the grinding organ "'which played every morning beneath his window, "'and, like it, alas, always set to the same tune. "'Mr. Brainerd rose from his chair. "'His particular acquaintance,' limped confidently into the room, very dexterously managing a club foot and a stiff elbow, and at the same time fixing upon Brainerd his light, piercing gray eye with an expression almost benevolent as he extended his hand. The half-outstretched hand of Mr. Brainerd was quickly seized and honored with a vigorous shake. "'Mr. Badger, how—' commencing Brainerd. "'I'm quite well, thank you. Don't disturb yourself. Sit down. 
Servant told me you were engaged, but I fancy I smelt dinner and thought if you'd no objections, I'd take a plate with you. These gentlemen, friends of yours, I suppose, introduce me. Mr. Badger, I am really especially engaged this afternoon. Don't speak of it. I can wait. No particular business on foot. These two or three hours. When we've finished dinner, we'll talk at leisure. Partridges, eh? Ducks, oyster pallies, champagne, eh? Great country, this country for good living. Who treats you, eh? Certainly, certainly, let me help you, replied Brainerd, endeavoring to resume his composure. These are my friends, Mr. Ellery, Mr. Alsop. Say no more, exclaimed Mr. Badger placidly. Mr. Ellery, how do you do, Alsop? Your health. Gentlemen, here's to our better acquaintance. The toast was drunk very innocently by Mr. Alsop, but Mr. Ellery made an involuntary wry face as he began to feel that he knew quite enough of the gentleman to satisfy him. Mr. Badger helped himself bountifully to a vast number of dishes, filled his tumbler, instead of the narrow-necked champagne glass, with the sparkling and foaming beverage, drew his chair close to the table, and made himself quite at home begging the other gentleman, with an impressive suavity peculiar to himself, to do the same. A casual observer might well have believed him to be the entertainer instead of a self-invited guest. Mr. Brainer looked on as though the highly seasoned viands had given him a waking nightmare, but Mr. Ellery, after the first moment's surprise, seemed to perfectly understand what was going on, and became more at ease than any other of the party, Mr. Badger excepted. When the conversation flagged with the other gentlemen, Mr. Badger sustained it with enviable facility, in spite of his mouth being full. This champagne is sublime, so sublime! Brainerd, help me to another glass, my dear fellow. Been in this room before, I think, eight partridges in this very room with a gentleman last september poor fella hung himself in a fit of the blues just week after i saw to it his clothes being sold though to pay a bad debt i had against him no great business that did a better thing this morning sublime success rainer do you know truesdell the methodist clergyman why, well, he is a man of great talent. I venerate his virtues. Quite right. Man of talent, great talent, great virtues. Particular friend of mine. Well, about a week ago, Gorham, the bootmaker, honored me with a bill of twenty dollars to collect against him. Went to see him, couldn't pay. Call next day on his pretty wife, fine woman, finest eyes in New York, got on the tender side of her. She promised to make her husband pay, called again the next day, wouldn't see me, 
Well, kept quite quiet till Sunday came. That was yesterday. Went to church early. Like going to church. Truesdale was to preach. Got a seat in the first pew, right straight in front of the pulpit. Sat quiet through prayers till Truesdale got up in the pulpit to preach. Then didn't I lean forward and rest my elbows on the front of the pew and hold my chin up with both hands and didn't I fix my eyes upon him never stirred them once looked right straight into the middle of his forehead like the magnetizers do no preaching that day no preaching at all tried to do it but i had my eye on him and he didn't know what he was driving at everybody said it was the shortest sermon they'd ever heard people went away i kept as still as a mouse until he came down from that pulpit then bolt up to him i went and thanked him for such a good sermon didn't he look pale and red? But he answered quiet as a lamb. Then I asked him in a whisper what time he would see me tomorrow. Nine o'clock, he says, and I, away I went. Called him this morning just as the clock was striking nine. Came to the door himself, looking doleful as though he was going to read a burial service. I put Bill in his hand. He put the money in mine and put his hand on my shoulder. God bless you, my son, says he. Amen, cries I. Great country, this. Fine preachers. Fine preachers. Mr. Badger finished his discourse, more to give himself leisure to finish the dish before him than because he had no more to add on this interesting subject. Mr. Ellery interrupted the silence by saying, Quite a maneuver of yours, very skillfully done. Mr. Brainer added some faint praise upon Mr. Badger's skill, but Mr. Alsop, who was beginning to feel ennuyé, looked about for his hat and walking stick, and politely apologized for tearing himself from such agreeable company. Talking of business, Brainerd said Mr. Badger. And now that I think of it, I have a little business with you. Don't go, Mr. Ellery. Nothing private. Merely a small bill of Mr. Schofield's that I'll just trouble Mr. Brainerd to look over while we're finishing this bottle. Mr. Badger laid the bill in front of Mr. Brainerd's plate, took up his brimming glass, and as he slowly sipped its contents, looked at Mr. Brainerd from out of the extreme corners of his eyes, smacking his lips every once a while as though the last tumbler of champagne afforded him even superior enjoyment to all the others. Badger, I'll pay you next week, said Brainerd at length. Thank you, my dear fellow, very obliging, but next week won't do. Mr. Schofield can't wait any longer, hopes to take a look at the dust tonight. I've a great mind to pitch you out the window and make you take a bite of it, muttered Brainerd. But in a moment he said, Badger, don't be a nard upon a poor fellow. I haven't a V in my pocket to bless myself with. First-rate dinner, this, said Badger, abstractly gnawing the bone of a partridge, which he took from the plate. Fine partridges! First I've tasted this season. Go 
on me Wednesday, Badger, and I'll do my best to settle it. What hour, dear fellow? I like to be punctual, you know. Uh, at twelve o'clock. You said you'd like to settle, I think. I will make an effort. Oh, don't let there be any mistake. Haven't much to do on Wednesday. Can see you any hour about this little business. All day long, if you please. Very well. Call at twelve. Twelve precisely. Good afternoon, Mr. Ellery. I must be going along. Good afternoon, my dear Brainerd. Wednesday at twelve. No mistake. Don't forget. Twelve. Mr. Badger, to the great relief of Ellery and Brainerd, left the two friends together. That's rather a troublesome acquaintance of yours, Brainerd. Can you contrive no way to get rid of him? The only way is to pay him. But the way to pay him is that so easy? Not with me, just at the present, I assure you. Since Mr. Badger has given you a little insight into the state of my private affairs, and you seem to take some interest in the subject, perhaps if I draw the veil entirely, you may find it in your power to do me a service. Certainly, certainly. That is to say, if my counsel can be of any service to you, I shall be desirous of proving my friendship. As for any other mode, on my honour... My resources are as slender as my wants are the opposite. The champagne and Mr. Badger have made me communicative, and I have an inclination to forestall you by giving a short history of my own circumstances before I am initiated into yours. I pass with the world at large, as with yourself, for a man of means, that is to say, I dress well, live well, am often seen in places of public amusement, frequently in fashionable society, and take especial pains to run no risk of being visited by Mr. Badger or any of his contemporaries. All this I managed to do on the very narrowest income imaginable, left to me by a maiden aunt, whose odd fancies I humoured for some fifteen years before her death. My only secret is this. I never waste small change in any luxuries myself. While I can make anyone else purchase my society by procuring them for me, when I dine at Delmonico's, it is always with a friend, Ecce Signum, when I attend a ball, I usually take a seat in the cab of some especial acquaintance who has a particular objection to soiling his boots. My tailor takes a reasonable discount because I am careful to introduce him to all the rich young blades about town. The Astor House I call my headquarters because it is respectable, and I always dine there when, by some mischance, I find myself without an invitation. I lodge in Vesey Street, occupy a suite of pretty bachelor apartments, which rent for a mere trifle. Breakfast I prepare for myself, a cup of coffee and a hot roll. Tea I always take with one or the other of my lady friends. With a little economy, I find no difficulty in making both ends meet. And now I have fairly let you behind the scenes. I have reasons for doing so. 
first i perceive you are about to do as much for me and secondly i foresee that we are going to be sworn friends and of mutual service to one another i am afraid you will have to give up the idea of my being of service to you when you hear my story not at all i wish to be perfectly candid if in the end you do not prove serviceable it will be my own fault there is no tie like interest therefore this confession should give you greater confidence in my friendship but to your confession i am a baltimorean as you already know my father who was an importing merchant died a little more than four years ago leaving me a clear fifty thousand until the time of his death i had been his head clerk and might have continued his business had it been to my taste it was not i sold out and travelled south two years and a half i lived i may say lived for i enjoyed all the good things of life upon my fifty thousand at the end of that time to my great consternation i found my account at the bank overdrawn the next six months i got along well enough on credit after that it was hard fighting to cut a long story short i came to new york two months ago because i was unknown here and because i heard some strange accounts of your good citizens who live by their wits which made me suppose that even i could weather the storm in such a congenial atmosphere it was only lately that i became aware of the existence of persons such as mr badger and now i suppose you know about as much as i can tell you you are right but the question is how are you to extricate yourself from your difficulties that question i cannot instantly solve there is such a place as wall street you know i might make a fortune in a few months by dealing in stocks or i might take a ticket and draw the prize of some secret lotteries or i might borrow a few hundreds from some obliging friends or you might hit upon a better plan than any of these wall street is the place to lose fortunes not make them lotteries yield blanks oftener than prizes your obliging friend you would find a more troublesome acquaintance than mr badger himself i have something surer to propose suppose you take a ticket in the lottery of hymen i was going to say love and draw a rich wife have you any objections not in the slightest if she will take me i suppose such a thing is to be had easily if you manage your cards adroitly remember you want a wife with good moral qualifications as the dandies say and a liberal father-in-law or better yet no father-in-law at all that is all that a man of sense in your circumstances should desire assuredly i could not request anything more well then to the business i have a large circle of exactly the kind of acquaintances necessary for you in new york i shall find no difficulty in introducing you and at the same time watching your proceedings i am particularly fond of any little affair of that kind which keeps my interest alive what do you say that i am your debtor for ever if you succeed not so if you do succeed the obligation will be very easily cancelled we have no time to lose in putting your plan into execution 
let me see mademoiselle calve plays at niblo's to-night all the fashionables will be there so will all the good religious people who think that the theatre where shakespeare's noble dramas are represented a shocking place but will look upon niblo's little stage his vaudevilles and rope dancers as perfectly proper suppose we pass the evening there and you try your luck at losing your heart agreed but i thought hearts had nothing to do with the matter why i presumed you would fancy it more agreeable if you could manage to lose your heart while you were getting a lining to your pocket for my own part i believe love has very little to do with happiness if a man has positively determined that he will be happy in spite of the circumstances nine love matches out of ten end in indifference or dislike and if you marry a woman from wise considerations you are only beginning where the lover ends and stand a chance of ending where he begins at all events you obtain your object for which you are married which he seldom does but to not love a woman with whom you are forced to live not to love what is not to love i will tell you it is not to be certain of quarrelling with your wife or of being jealous of her or of having her jealous of you it is not to begin the day with strife and end it with tears and protestations and reconciliations i have no doubt you are right and i admire your philosophy but the clock has struck eight had we better not be on our way to niblo's at all i am ready the performance had commenced and the two gentlemen arrived at niblo's and the crowd was so dense that they could with difficulty obtain seats brainard directed his opera glass to the pit rather than to the stage and commenced questioning ellery about the numerous pretty faces around them pray who may that be he began that oh miss blank a young girl in whom you must not get interested nobody of consequence was ellery's frequent reply why my friend you are selecting all the beauties and seem to have forgotten that we are here on business i see i must relinquish listening to the divine calve and must play asmodeus for your especial benefit look to your right in the third box from the stage front bench do you see the young lady leaning against the column the one in the quaker coloured silk dress with the hair that the painters called auburn but the common people brownish red a nose decidedly and irretrievably snub mouth shaped like the letter o an unhealthy-looking complexion a small narrow eyes and lids that make a vain attempt to force themselves open upon my honour fate ought to have made her an heiress to make up for the pleasantries of nature you surely do not select her for the future mrs brainard you must decide upon that she is the daughter of a very wealthy gentleman of the city a hardware merchant who has retired from business the young men estimate her moral qualities at about one hundred thousand dollars look at her again now as she speaks i observe she has fine teeth and a very pleasing smile 
but how shall I ever reconcile myself to the tout ensemble? Think of Mr. Badger and her fortune will do that. Is she an only child? No, she has one sister, a few years younger, about sixteen, I would suppose. She is sitting directly behind her. Oh, I see her. Really a very pretty girl. Fair skin, fine color, blue eyes, rather heavy and mournful looking, though. A profusion of light hair, hanging rather too carelessly about her neck and shoulders. But how strangely she is dressed, in opposition to all the rules of fashion. There is something odd about her, altogether. Her head leans on one side, and the expression of her countenance is exceedingly languid, or else affected. The latter, most probably. You would have to play a deep game to win her, and trust a great deal to luck. She fancies herself a heroine, and is in reality something of a coquette. An excessive and unrestrained indulgence in novel reading has spoiled her head, if not her heart. She is becoming intoxicated with romance, and requires this stimulus as much as the inebriate does his daily dram. She is a creature full of sentiment and sensibility, living on the very breath of excitement, who has sicklied a really fine understanding with too highly seasoned food. She believes every man to be her lover and every woman her persecutor. She inflicts imaginary woes upon herself for the sake of imaginary pleasures, and a scene is her delight. I have known her from childhood, and I believe the errors of her education are attributable to a weak-minded mother who adores her, and the neglect of a father wholly engrossed by business occupations, and to the pernicious influence of a fashionable boarding-schools. But her fortune, that will be equal to her sister's. Ah, oh, yes, but she will not be easily won. You will have to seem to suffer for her, to be persecuted for her. You must turn hero to obtain such a heroine. Trust me for all that. Then, as a wife, she will not be the amiable, sensible person which you would expect to find in her elder sister. But her elder sister is a fright. Really, I cannot think of her, that is, unless the younger one rejects me. Pray, by what names am I to designate these two ladies? The Mrs. Clinton, Rachel and Esther, uh, Estelle, I should say, for by that name the younger chooses of late years to be called. I am an intimate friend of the family and will introduce you tomorrow, but you had better prepare yourself by reading Madame de Stal's Corinne or getting some scraps of poetry by heart. Never fear, you will find me accomplished in my part, quickly responded Brainerd. A few moments' silence ensued, during which Brainerd appeared to be contemplating the lady, whom he destined for his future wife. Suddenly, however, he seized the arm of his friend with some violence. Ellery, look at the beautiful creature who sits next but one to Miss Clinton, was there ever anything so perfectly lovely? Is she not of the same party? Pray, tell me who she is. Take care, Brainerd. Remember, hearts have nothing to do with the matter. She is no wife for you. To be more explicit, she has not yet discovered herself to possess any family spoons. No, but what a Grecian head! What shining dark hair! How classically it is braided around her forehead! What radiant eyes! 
is not their expression angelic did you ever see a happier face everything passing upon the stage seems reflected in her countenance as in a mirror with what childlike glee she laughs and turns to the gentleman next to her who could help admiring such naivete such beauty remember badger pshaw tell me who she is ellery i can admire her without marrying her can i not her name is walton her history is a rather interesting one when quite a child she was placed by her uncle under the care of mr and mrs lemming who then kept a very excellent seminary for young ladies the misses clinton were her schoolmates and an intimacy arose between them and miss walton which continued although the clintons were removed for the last four years of their education to mrs o'kill's more fashionable boarding-school miss walton is the age of esther the limmings have given up school but she still remains with them for her uncle is a most singular individual and she has neither mother or father this uncle mr mordaunt about eighteen years ago was a highly esteemed and talented lawyer who everybody expected would in a few years be at the head of his profession i knew him well he was an agreeable fellow in society but passionate and revengeful in the extreme suddenly everything seemed to go wrong with him he neglected his business grew moody and silent and seemed to take no further interest in the affairs of life this disposition has continued until the present day as far as i am acquainted he never had but one brother and a sister both of whom died suddenly sixteen or seventeen years ago they were both unmarried yet he calls this child his niece and it is presumed she is merely an adopted one although he is now a hard-featured morose-looking man the resemblance between him and miss walton is so strong that i have heard it whispered that she is his illegitimate daughter this i think more than probable although he never shows her the slightest fatherly affection he is a bachelor and owns a three-story house near the battery where he lives with one old family servant the lower story of the house is the only part ever used the rest remains unopened and uninhabited this many year he receives no friends and visits none his circumstances are desperate in spite of his talents which appear of late years to be completely paralyzed his only property is the house of which i speak many advantageous offers have been made to him if he would sell this house but he seems determined to refuse them all yet the comforts of a home he never enjoys for miss walton continues to reside with the lemmings what a brute he must be and she is is she not bewitchingly beautiful yes but since i have convinced you that she does not possess the requisite qualifications for you her beauty is of little importance answered the money-seeking ellery brainard sighed fixed his attention a few minutes on the stage, and, when his head turned again, it was to contemplate the fair Esther. "'Who is this young man beside Miss Esther?' Uh, "'Estelle, I should say. "'The son of Dr. Chadwick, an eminent surgeon of the city. "'An elegant-looking fellow, truly. 
Is he paying his addresses to Miss Estelle? Not that I am aware of. He seems more fascinated with the lovely Miss Walton. Uselessly so, however, for his family, who belong to our elites, would never consent to the match. For the rest of the evening, Brainerd devoted his attention to Mademoiselle Calvet, and seemed to hear nothing but her thrilling voice until the curtain fell. As he was passing from the illuminated garden to the street, with Ellery, he found himself directly behind the Clintons. Their elegant private carriage was standing at the entrance, but, as usual, there was some difficulty with the hackmen, who were furiously whipping their horses and swearing at each other, in total regard of everybody present. Just as Esther's foot was on the step of her father's carriage, the whip of a half-intoxicated coachman accidentally struck one of the highly mettled horses attached to it. Instantly he began to plunge and rear, springing towards the sidewalk. "'Quick! His rein, quick! Catch the horse's rein, and you are made!' whispered Ellery, pushing Brainerd forward. Brainerd comprehended him, and, thrusting aside a couple of gentlemen who were going to offer their assistance, he rushed up to the rearing animal and seized him boldly by the rein. The horse instantly became quiet, but Brainerd, who knew his position was a graceful one, remained, forcibly holding up the creature's head, with his eyes fixed upon Esther. That young lady tottered backward, and looked as though she thought this a very proper occasion to faint, but had not fully concluded upon doing so. Brainerd's position and timely aid were not, however, lost upon her, and when he ventured to come forward and hand her into her carriage, she raised her eyes to his, with an expression which Fanny Kimball might have studied and murmured, "'My deliverer!' "'Bravo, Brainerd!' exclaimed Ellery. "'Fortune has made up her mind to smile upon you. "'That little scene made more impression on the fair lady's heart "'than a five-month courtship could have done. "'Tomorrow you must call upon her, with me, "'to inquire as to the state of her health after her terrible accident. "'Do not forget you saw her extreme peril, and that your arm is lamed in consequence of protecting her. Suppose you wear it in a sling. As you please, tonight we tried the graceful, tomorrow we assume the interesting. Anything to escape having one's digestion injured by Mr. Badger. End of chapter 1